Today's episode contains descriptions of domestic violence. Listener discretion is advised. In most court junkie episodes, you hear about the defendant accused of a crime, a judge keeping order, the prosecutor and the defense attorney both trying their best to sway the jury. But at the trial, often sitting quietly on the courtroom benches, are the family members of the victim or victims. He just kept smiling, like he was proud of what he did. In today's episode, we talk to a son who couldn't help but feel helpless. It was enough. I I was sick of seeing the black eyes. I was sick of my mom crying. And I wanted to take care of it. And a daughter who was terrified for her mom. I just need you to write down my story because he's going to kill me. Ryan Van Doren and Laura Bennett are listeners of Court Junkie and contacted me about their mother's case, a case that demonstrates the difficulty of leaving an abusive relationship, of a system that failed to protect a vulnerable victim, and a callous murderer who shouldn't have been able to do what he did. This is Jillian, and in partnership with the Law & Crime Trial Network, you are listening to Court Junkie, Episode 145. Waterloo, a sleepy village in Seneca County, New York. A village of about 5,000 people. A relatively safe village where, according to the Associated Press, there hadn't been any murders in more than 20 years. Lori McConnell was a spunky woman who loved her family. She had been a stay-at-home mom, but once her three children were older, she opened up a shop to sell crafts and wreaths. Some might say she was the small-town equivalent of Martha Stewart, the Christmas queen who loved to go over the top with her holiday decorations. Her creative mind had a knack for turning cheap dollar store decorations into something beautiful, as her daughter, Laura Bennett, can still recall. If you walked into her house, you can, you really like, you go in and it looks like one of those magazines from like Martha Stewart or something. That's, that's something that she loved to do is decorate and put things together. Her favorite holiday was Christmas. And I think all three of us kind of take after her with that. Um, my one big thing that I always remembered is walking into a room and she, she literally had strung lights and garland from one side of the ceiling to the next, and it just lit up the whole room. As an adult, Lori's son, Ryan Van Doren, turned to his mom whenever he needed advice. What color should he paint the wall? What looks best here? Local businesses would sometimes call her up too if they needed an interior decorator. Lori was always brimming with ideas, with her eye for creating something joyful and beautiful. There were other sides to their mother, too. Ryan said she struggled with depression. Lori had experienced trauma as a child, which seemed to haunt her in adulthood. Her whole life, from day of birth until death, like it was chaos the whole time. She never had... She never had a good life, like maybe short little periods of time. Like, I mean, I mean, the kids, my brother, my sister and myself, we probably brought joy to her. But 
I mean, still taking care of kids is, I mean, that can't be your only joy of life. And I feel like that's all she has. My, my mom, I mean, she wasn't very, uh, she wasn't a very happy person sometimes, most of the time. I feel like the, the life that she lived, she was just, I mean, she was happy when her kids were around and stuff like that, but she just, I don't know. Um, I think, I feel like the only time she was happy is when she was drinking. As much as she didn't want to hear it from us, but I, sometimes I knew my mom had depression. Like she knew she had depression. She had, she was seeing a doctor for that. But growing up, like before I understood any of this stuff, because my mom tried to, she tried to shelter all three of us kids. So we didn't really have a, we thought our life was, I mean, we thought we had a good life and we thought that, um, our mother was normal and stuff like that. But knowing as I got older and learning stuff about like depression and mental issues and stuff like that, like growing up, I know my mom had them the whole time we were kids too. Lori shared with her children, her memories of her upbringing. Well, her father left her when she was pretty young. She was just a toddler. And she, I remember her telling me a story about how every day she would go to the window and wait for her dad. And one day she was waiting and he just never came back. My grandmother, her mother, was bouncing from marriage to marriage. And, uh, and well, how my mom has told us was uh, that, like, my grandmother would always choose her husbands over her and, and my grandmother was an alcoholic. Lori ended up getting married when she was just 16 years old to her children's father. They were together for about 14 years when they divorced. About a year later, Lori got married again. But that marriage didn't work out either. To Ryan, it seemed like she was following in her mother's footsteps. Except that Lori's priority was always her family. She only focused on us kids. So like when us, when we left, she, I mean, so she was taking care of a uh, husband and kids since she was 16 years old because mm-hmm. she had me when she was 17. So taking care of kids her whole life. So then when we were out, I feel like she got to, even knowing she was in her 40s, she, she started living her childhood late, I guess with the extra partying and all that extra stuff that she was doing. She was doing it now. It was a perfect storm, as they say, for what would come next. Twice divorced, Lori didn't like being alone. Ryan said she was happier with someone there. And that's how Lori became reacquainted with Emerson John Tahafjian in a bar around 2015 or 2016. Lori knew John because she had lived next door to his aunt. Right away, Lori's kids did not like her new off-again, on-again boyfriend, John. There was something in his eyes that didn't sit well with Laura. As an adult, I can just look at you and I can tell whether you're a good person or a bad person, really. He just looked evil. And there was reason to be suspicious of the new man in Lori's life. News 10 NBC reported that John had a violent criminal background dating back nearly 30 years 
since he was first arrested in 1990 and convicted of robbery. In recent years, John's name still popped up in the local media from time to time for being arrested for driving while intoxicated or for owing more than $42,000 in medical debt, a judgment that was sent to the county clerk's office. I had called her and I started questioning, like, why are you hanging out with him? What are you doing? And if you knew my mom, she she kind of picked these men that she thought she could fix. She wanted to fix everybody. If the prior criminal record wasn't enough of a cause for concern, John's drug usage and behavior while on drugs was. He he was in to drugs and she couldn't seem to get him to stop. Like that's one thing about her is that she always she would beg him and plead and all this stuff, like, please just stop. Because when he wasn't doing drugs, she said that he was such a different person. But when he was doing drugs, she said that she was afraid for her life all the time. And you, she always told me you would never know if he was doing drugs or not because one day he'll come home from work perfectly happy. The next he's coming home trying to fight. To be clear, Laura said her mom wasn't into drugs. But not only was John, but he hung out with people who were too. In fact, Laura said there was one incident where someone had damaged John's car. Lori told her daughter that John had owed money to a drug dealer, and that was the result. John was also cocky. He was a local painter who told grand tales. And no, Lori's kids didn't like him at all. The constant, like... Stories like some people just are big storytellers, and you can see through the stories. And he would always have these stories about jobs that he did and stuff like that. But um, we knew that he was like borrowing money from our mother and stuff like that. So if he had all these big jobs, then why would he be taking my mom's money and stuff like that? So like we, I mean, I don't know. He just had a lot of stories. And then, uh, I mean, we did our own research. We started hearing stories about him around town and how he wasn't a good person, how he was always in trouble with the wall and stuff like that. Yeah, she didn't like to bring him around us very much because my brother and I have big mouths, and I think he was controlling a lot um, of that relationship, and she didn't want to see what would happen if we started talking to him. Worse, they hated how John treated their mother. He isolated Lori from her family. He took over her cell phone, so when her children messaged her, concerned about her, in reality, it was John who often wrote them back. There's many incidents that he would toss her down the stairs or push her around. She would have black and blue eyes. Um, She used to tell me all the time that she would bring a screwdriver And she would hide it under her pillow and sleep on the couch just in case he ever came after her. One one time, my mom and I were arguing, like, through text messages. And all of a sudden, I figured out it was actually John that was that I was arguing with. And it was I was actually on my husband's phone. And I get a message because he thinks it's Andy that he's going to eat my eyeballs out 
he threatened my husband to eat his eyeballs out. At one point, Lori had to go live with John in his trailer due to the way he was acting in her apartment complex. She got stuck with him at one point. She did have to move in with him at one point because he was putting um, drywall screws under people's um, tires at the apartment complex that she was living at. And her landlord's like, you got to go. I got it on video. And he, people are afraid of him. So he, he, it was kind of his plan the whole time. Ryan said his mom would call the police to intervene as she and John had alcohol-fueled fights. But Ryan didn't believe the system, from the judges to the police, ever took her concerns seriously. By then, Lori's violent, abusive relationship had been going on for years. Then, one day, Lori told her daughter something else that had happened with John, something that she made her promise to never tell her brothers. It was a secret Laura kept with her until after her mother died. The details are harrowing. Lori told her that she had been drinking a few days prior, and all of a sudden she blacked out something that had never happened to her before. She said when she woke up, another man was on top of her, sexually assaulting her, while John watched from a corner of the room. Lori was afraid and believed that John had drugged her. Lori also told her daughter that John would threaten to harm her grandchildren if she left, even telling her that he had feelings of wanting to hurt young children. Laura decided to start driving her kids to school and began avoiding seeing John altogether. Any visits she and the kids would have with Lori would be when John wasn't home. The logistics of leaving were a barrier for Lori to have a clean escape. She lived in Seneca County, which didn't have its own domestic violence shelter. She also worried about what would happen to her beloved cat if she left. She didn't want to leave without her pets. When my mom actually went to the place that's called Safe Harbors for domestic violence, they were trying to send my mom to Livingston County, which is like an hour and a half, two hours away. My mom had no vehicle, no nothing. So she would have been an hour and a half, two hours away, away from her family, everything. And my mom, I knew my mom wasn't going to take that. Now, if they had something closer for her to go to, so that she knew she still had my sister and my brother and myself nearby. I feel like she would still be alive right now. Like she would have been somewhere where she could have been protected, say, or not say, she would have just been protected. There's little post-its all over any of the county buildings or all over the place that has like safe harbors or domestic violence hotline and I used to rip them off all the time and I used to give them to my mom all the time and be like you know you need to call these places you need to try to get help because this is not normal mom. I think she was giving us like hints but I think he scared her. I feel like she was too scared to leave and um, she didn't know what to do and then when it got later on like um, when she finally did leave, and then she started leaving us out of the loop on certain things. I don't know if he, like, gave her threats towards us where she felt like she had to protect us or she knew what was going to happen. 
And that if we were around, that she was trying to protect us to be away from all that. And I don't, I really don't know. Finally, Lori left, but John didn't make it easy. I think she finally just decided it was time to go. So my husband, my brother, and myself helped him, helped her move. Um, as he's making remarks that he was going to get her, he was grabbing his private parts in front of me and my mom when the boys were outside. He was just unbearable. Lori got her own place and a job. Things were looking up. I was like, finally, my mom is starting to get her shit together and she's trying to take care of herself. And But the newfound peacefulness in Lori's life didn't last. She had only been on her own again at her own apartment for a few months when one day John broke in and attacked her. I mean, she wasn't even fully unpacked. And that's when um, John broke in there, kidnapped her, drove her on a back road, raped her, threw her cat. Her, she, he stole her cat in the cat cage and everything and threw that across the road and all this other stuff. And so she finally got away. And then he does this. So now she's even more scared. Ryan said his brother drove Lori to the police station later that day to report the kidnap and rape. She was then taken to the hospital to get medical tests done. Her cat was okay and survived. John was arrested. But his time in jail was very short-lived. Two days after his arrest, he was free. As soon as he was released, my mom, like I never in my whole life ever saw my mom scared. Not even when this guy was punching her in the face or nothing. My mom still, I never seen like fear in her eyes until after that. After he kidnapped her, took her to a back road, raped her, and then they released him from jail. My mom like was scared. Like I never saw my mom scared my whole life. So that's when I started getting even more worried, like... This is the woman that I remember, like, she, like, she didn't ever, she never showed us defeat. And this guy definitely was defeating her. Throughout their mother's abuse over the years, there was a feeling of helplessness. Ryan wanted so badly to take justice into his own hands. It was enough. I was sick of seeing the black eyes. I was sick of my mom crying. And I wanted to take care of it. And, but my wife's like, she was the voice of reason. Like, you can't do that. For Laura, sometimes she was in denial about her mother's abusive relationship. Other times, everything was spelled out in front of her, so it was very real. One day, her mother asked her to write down everything that had happened to document her ordeal, just in case. She called me over to her friend Jackie's house and she said, I need you to write down everything that's happened to me. And I was like, well, why? Like, what are you talking about? And being the daughter, like, you don't want to think anything negative, you know? So she said, well, I've reached out to Safe Harbors. I've tried to have them help me. I've tried to get the police to help me. I just need you to write down my story because he's going to kill me. I was. I was in shock and I'm like, you know, he's not going to kill you, mom. Like, we're not going to let that happen. And she said, Laura, please, I just need you to do this because 
people need to understand what happened to me because nobody's helping me. A week later, on July 10th, 2018, Lori walked into an ambush. She had been out with her friend, Karen, and returned to stay the night at Karen's apartment. When their taxi arrived back at the apartment, John was hiding in the bushes. According to the Finger Lake Times, Karen had posted their whereabouts on Facebook that night, so John knew where to find them. When authorities were dispatched to the scene at 11.45 p.m., the screen door to the apartment was open. Inside, Karen's boyfriend, Charlie Andrews, lay dead on the living room floor. Lori was sitting upright on the couch, gasping for air. The police could see the blood. The police report said an unknown woman, she was later identified as Karen, was crying on another couch. He killed Lori, Karen said. A deputy asked where the shooter was. It was John, Karen said, according to the police report. He ran outside. Authorities began CPR on Lori on the floor, but she died from her gunshot injuries. She was 53 years old. Karen, the sole survivor, had called 911. There were now two homicides in the small town that hadn't had any for years. Authorities now began their search for John. Normally, Laura silences her phone when she goes to bed, but on that night, she left it on. Her phone began ringing at 2 a.m., At first, she didn't answer. As she started to wake up, she began scrolling through Facebook, and a bit of news caught her attention. Waterloo was on lockdown. And I immediately had a gut feeling that it had to do with my mother. So I call a couple of the people that called me back, and they said, the first one was Aunt Lori, it's Aunt Lori, Aunt Lori's dead, you need to do something, Um, and he was just kind of panicking. From about 2 to 11 a.m., she called police stations, sheriff's offices, local hospitals, trying to get confirmation that it was her mom who had been shot. No one would call her back, so she got into her car and went down to the scene. She approached an investigator and begged him for some answers. She recalled how nice he was to her opening the door to his squad car, and then taking her to the police station to talk to her there. Probably the one of the loneliest times in my whole life, I sat there by myself as they told me that it was my mom. Ryan had to be at work at 7 that morning. He got up and got ready to leave. When he looked at his phone, he noticed several missed calls from his sister. It wasn't normal for her to call him several times like that. She wouldn't do that unless there was an emergency. I was like, oh, crap, I better call. So, you know, I called her, and then she was like, um, there was a murder in Waterloo, and I think it was mom. And I was like, Laura, I was like, knock it off. I was like, enough of the conspiracies and all this other stuff. Like, like you can't just say that you think it's mom just because there was a murder. She was like, I just had this feeling. I'm like, I, I feel like you're crazy. So I said, I got to get ready for work. 
And I pushed it off. But as Ryan was on his way to work, he started having doubts. What if it was his mom? Wait, what if she's right? Like this guy is like being relentless. Like he's just not leaving her alone. And so I called my work and I was like, I can't come in. I got some family stuff going on. And I just turned around and came straight home. By the time we got home, that's when we had a better realization that it was our mother because it started getting plastered over Facebook. Ryan felt like his whole world was crashing down. And like my mom wasn't perfect. And some of the stories I said to you, like, you know that she's not perfect, but she was still a living being and she didn't deserve to have her life taken away. Two days later, on July 12th, 2018, Captain Barry Chase with the New York State Police and other officials held a press conference to announce that John had been caught. At approximately 4.30 a.m. yesterday morning, members of the state police, including the state police special operations response team and state police crisis negotiators, established a perimeter around a small tent in a campsite where it was determined that Jehofficin was at. After three hours of negotiating, Jehofficin surrendered and upon taking him into custody was determined that he had sustained self-inflicted lacerations to his neck and a wrist that required immediate medical attention. A staged ambulance responded and transported him to Mercy Flight where he was flown to a hospital and is currently listed in stable condition. When Tahafogen is released from the hospital, he will be charged with the death of these two individuals. When asked about John's lengthy criminal background, Seneca County District Attorney Barry Porsche detailed John's two recent arrests, including for Lori's rape, a month before the shootings. He said John's family had bailed him out of jail after only two days. A judge then later denied the prosecutor's request for a bench warrant and a higher bail when John failed to show up to court on June 27th for a hearing. Authorities declined to release any victim IDs during the press conference, saying they don't disclose the names of sexual assault victims. However, Lori's children confirmed it was their mother who had been raped by John. On June 3rd of this year, he was arrested on four different misdemeanors. He was taken in front of a local town court where the judge set bail 500,000, issued an order of protection. He, He bailed out. On June 19th of 2018, he was arrested for rape in the first degree and a couple other crimes. He was taken in front of a town court. The judge set bail 10,000 cash, 20,000 bond, issued an A order of protection, which is a stay away order of protection on behalf of the victim. A family member uh, posted his uh, bail and he was released from the jail. Uh, A second order of protection was issued by the Seneca County Family Court and was served on the defendant on June 19th. Uh, He bailed out on June 21st after a a relative posted his bail. Uh, He was scheduled to appear on those original misdemeanor counts. He was scheduled to appear in the town court on June 27th, 2018. He failed to appear on that day. And my office requested a bench warrant 
and recommended an additional 10,000, 20,000 bail. And the judge refused our request. Local journalists followed up with questions. The following exchange was captured on FingerLakes1.com's YouTube channel. Now, the fact that he was able to post bail and that he now allegedly killed these people, did the system fail these victims? The system, what do you mean by the system? The fact that he was able to post $10,000 bail and it wasn't any higher and he was already, you know, charged with rape and he was seen on June 3rd and... We understand, we we get it that uh, uh, families, friends, citizens, we all want to put blame on somebody. Um, And uh, we have, you know, there is a system of laws in our country, obviously. um, But uh, when it's all said and done, the person that pulled the trigger is is the person that should be held accountable for this. And he's really the real one to be blamed here. Okay. Had the system failed, Lori? Ryan thinks so. And I know the DA was getting mad at my brother and myself. I don't know if my sister was making comments or not, but I know my brother and I were definitely making comments because when the, when the murder happened, we had a lot of reporters at our house. And we kept putting blame on the judge and the police for not doing their jobs. And I feel like they didn't take my mom serious because I feel like when my mom and John were together, the police were called a lot for domestic um, issues. And I think the, you know, the story cry wolf and, you know, you cry wolf so many times and then the, you're not going to get saved or whatever. I feel like that's what happens with my mom. Like they kept calling the cops every time they got drunk and they were fighting with each other. And then when the finally, when my mom needed help, they, I think they just laughed at her. In late 2018, John's trial began. He was charged with 18 crimes, including first-degree murder in the deaths of Lori McConnell and 45-year-old Charlie Andrews. Ryan went to the trial every day. It was like one of the hardest things to have to go through, especially seeing how he was sitting in the same room. like, And as we're hearing some of the stories and stuff like that, like, I started getting angry. Like, like, and I was afraid that I wasn't going to... I would have to come home uh, to my wife and be like, I don't know if I can continue going because I don't know how long I'm going to be able to hold this rage because it's a lot. Like, this, the man that murdered my mother is sitting, you know, 10, 15 feet away from us. Laura was there, too. She wanted answers. I mean, it wasn't really important for me to be there. It was, it was more of a what I thought would have been closure. I needed to know all the details, who was involved, who helped, who, where was he, what did he do, how did he do it. I just needed all this information that I probably, now looking back, I probably could do without because I still think about a lot of it. At the trial, the siblings learned the full details of the case. How John, a felon, had gotten the gun from a friend. How he had circled around the apartment, stalking Lori. And how he fired multiple rounds at the three victims. I I guess the hardest part 
for me was learning about how many times he shot her. I, I, I don't know. That, I mean, that sticks in my head. Like, why, why did you have to shoot her like that many times? Or I, I guess, I, why did you have to shoot her at all? Learning how John had been stalking their mom infuriated him and also made him think about what she had been going through. Driving around in circles or getting out of his car and circling her apartment. Like, that stuff was making me mad. Like, no wonder she didn't ever feel safe because, I mean, I'm sure this wasn't the first time that this guy did this. Like, like you know, made her feel uncomfortable. Also haunting was a video they showed of Lori from the night she died. They showed uh, my mom in the taxi cab. They showed that video, like, I mean, that made me a little sad because I knew that was her last time having a good time. She was laughing, and and then that was going to be her last time. While the siblings were in the courtroom, John wasn't afraid to make eye contact with them. I probably stared at him probably 80% of the trial because I wanted to see his facial expressions and stuff like that. And the dude had no remorse, no empathy, no nothing, like... He was even smiling when reporters were walking by, like, no. He always acted like he was proud of himself. He he did make eye contact with all of us at one point and just smiled. He just kept smiling, like he was proud of what he did. And it makes me sick because I don't think he was just trying to hurt her. I'm almost positive he wanted me, Matt, and Ryan to hurt too, and he got what he wanted, so that made him happy. The Associated Press reported from the trial how Karen, the lone survivor, played a pivotal role. District Attorney Barry Porsche told reporters, quote, if you were in the courtroom, you heard her testify with no hesitation. On the readback, you heard the 911 call being played. Four minutes. Three times she said John shot all of us. Three times she said that in the first 42 seconds. While the victims and survivor had their supporters in the courtroom, John had his own supporters too. They argued there wasn't enough evidence against him. John's dad told reporters, quote, if he is guilty, then he should be punished. But there's no evidence that shows he did this. No gun, no DNA, no residue, nothing. The jury deliberations began and dragged on for eight hours. This worried Laura, who thought it was a cut-and-dry case. Why was it taking so long? She refused to leave the courthouse, scared she would miss the verdict. During that time, John walked through the back of the courtroom, officers present with him. I hope you have a great life. John said, smiling at Laura. And I kind of still to this day take it as a threat. Finally, the jury returned, a decision reached. Laura felt a sense of relief flow over her. Guilty. Put this monster away forever, she told the court. The judge said he would make sure John never walked the streets again. It made Ryan feel like somebody was finally listening. John, who was 49, was sentenced to life in prison without parole in February 2019. According to the Finger Lake Times, in January 2020, 
John pleaded guilty to a first-degree rape charge. Authorities said he took an Elford plea, not admitting to the crime, but acknowledging he would be convicted at trial. He is scheduled to be sentenced in early March, according to the media reports. Since the trial, Lori's children have tried to advocate for changes to the system and to do good in the world in their mother's honor, work that's been more difficult to carry out because of the ongoing pandemic that's disrupted life in recent months. They have fought to bring more attention to domestic violence, however. They started a scholarship for a graduating high school senior in the county. The family also worked with New York State Senator Pam Helming, who announced in November 2018 that she secured $300,000 to build a domestic violence shelter in Seneca County. The funding was approved in the 2018 budget, but by early 2021, the process to get the grant money was slowed because of the pandemic and other political issues. Senator Helming said the fact that even today, six counties in New York, including Seneca, still don't have domestic violence shelters ought to force legislators to be working overtime to address that issue. You know, that was one of the issues with Lori. She was offered a safe haven, but it was over an hour away from where she where she lived and where she worked and where her support system, her children were located, and she didn't go. Had there been a facility right here in Seneca County closer to home and she had gone, she could be alive today. Even with the delay in state funding, plans to build a domestic violence shelter in Seneca that would be a safe haven in a tri-county region have not been abandoned. Safe Harbor of the Finger Lakes privately fundraised for the project including getting $300,000 from one woman alone who was inspired to help, according to Senator Helming. Once the shelter opens, a timeline the senator was unsure of, it will have a tremendous impact on the community and will even include a tribute to Lori. I would just like to thank Laura Bennett, Lori's daughter, and her son. They have been tremendous advocates in seeing this whole project, uh, you know, from the very beginning, they've been there supporting it. It's my understanding that once this new domestic violence home opens in Seneca County, that one of the rooms will be named after their mother. Two years after his mom's death, Ryan thinks about how much he misses her. Like when he's redecorating the back room, what color would look best? His mom always had the right answer. Laura sees Christmas decorations and instantly is reminded of her mom. Ryan recently got a promotion at work. It felt empty not being able to pick up the phone and call his mom to share the good news. In a small town, it's hard to hide from the places that are reminders of what happened. They are always there, inescapable. Ryan drives by Cheerful Valley the campground where John was hiding out and was caught by authorities after he killed Lori. I drive by there every day on my way to work, every day. So every time I drive by there, that's what I think about. Or the house. My sister actually had to move out of Waterloo because um, she didn't want to drive by the house where my mom was murdered every day. Lori is buried less than a mile from where Ryan lives today.
it's hard. Like every time I go there, it's like everything comes flooding back. <laughs> so I, I think it's, I don't want to say less. I, I should go there a lot more, but maybe, I mean, maybe it's in this last year, it's turned into every couple months that I go over there. Sometimes I'll just drive in there and just drive right back out. Sometimes I get out, sit over there for a while. And that's all for this episode. As always, I'd love to know what you think. Let me know on Instagram at CoreJunkie, on Twitter at CoreJunkiePod, or you can email me your thoughts at podcast at CoreJunkie.com. We may include any comments on our next sidebar episode, where we discuss court junkie cases, case updates from the past, cases we're currently following, and other things involving true crime. Our first episode of Sidebar was released a couple weeks ago on this feed and is also available on YouTube at youtube.com slash courtjunkie. A very special thank you to Ryan Van Doren and Laura Bennett for sharing their mom's story with us. If you or anyone you know is involved in a domestic violence situation, you can go to thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-SAFE. I also want to thank Senator Pam Helming for talking to us about their efforts with the upcoming domestic violence shelter in Seneca County. This episode was researched and written by Gabrielle Rusan. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.